please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. We have just a few weeks ago begun our journey through the book of Acts together as a church, and we are going to pick up and try to cover the rest of chapter 1 today. As you are turning there, some, some sermons have one crystal clear point, and they just hammer that point for the whole sermon. And that's great. I think sermons often should be like that. And some sermons are a little bit like shooting with buckshot. You kind of hit a lot of different things all at once. Today is a buckshot sermon, okay? <laughs> so we're, we're going to be hitting a lot of different topics all together that we are kind of flying under one big banner today. The big banner that, that the sermon largely sits under is the idea that God is sovereign and He is working for our good, even in the midst of the most horrifying moments in life. Uh, in this case, the betrayal of Judas uh, against Jesus. So God is sovereign and good, even over the most dreadful moments of life, and that is a comfort to us. That's the large banner, but we're going to cover all kinds of things underneath that banner today. I want to show you a slide here. You may recognize where we are. I suppose this is either sunset or sunrise, like, and uh, I guess that's sunset. And uh, you're here, we're on the Mount of Olives. You can see those many graves just beneath at the bottom of that picture. And then right there, about a third of the way up, is the Kidron Valley, which is the low point outside the walls of Jerusalem. And then you have uh, where the temple used to be. Now, today, obviously, you have uh, the Dome of the Rock, and you have the, uh, the famous Muslim mosque there on the side, but uh, that is where the temple would have been. And uh, in the passage where we are today, Jesus ascends back into heaven just behind where this photographer would have been standing. So he is on the eastern slope of the, of the Mount of Olives behind the photographer here when, where the ascension happens. You know, they build a lot of different churches saying this is the church of the ascension, and no, this one's the church of the ascension. Well, it was somewhere on the slope. We don't know precisely where, but everyone's got their little monument. There's the tower of the ascension here and the this of that. <laughs> well, we don't know precisely the square foot where he, where he left earth, but it happened right here on the Mount of Olives. So just kind of have that image in your mind as we read. Uh, I'm going to reread last couple of weeks' text, 1 through 11, and then we will pick up with today's passage. So this is Acts 1, verses 1 through 11, and this is God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
I'm just going to stop there, and then as we move through today's text, I'll take it sort of piece by piece. So just real quick, can you think of an Old Testament story that reminds you a little bit of this ascension moment? I think about, starts with E's, you remember? Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Now, in a sense, this is going to be a little complicated, I guess, but in a sense, Elijah was a precursor actually of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was, uh, was kind of the fulfillment of the Elijah who was to come. And he prepared the way for Jesus, who in a sense took over for John the Baptist, and Jesus was like an Elisha figure. If you read Elisha's story in, in the Second Kings, he does a lot of the kinds of healings and feedings of many people out of small amounts of food that sounds just like Jesus. Jesus is the new and better Elisha. But Jesus is also the new and better Elijah at the same time. Try to hold this together, okay? So just as Elisha was a disciple of Elijah and he followed him around, Elisha asked for, uh, he wanted a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, and Elijah did not die. Remember, he was taken up to heaven. He had his own sort, sort of ascension. It wasn't the same as Jesus. He was not God incarnate, but he was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot in 2 Kings 2, and the spirit of Elijah was placed upon Elisha, and he went about doing great deeds in the spirit of, of the one who discipled him. And, and many people see here some kind of allusion to that, that as Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples take the spirit of Jesus, which comes at Pentecost in just 10 days, and they begin to do works uh, in the same light, as, uh, same kinds of works that Jesus had done in many ways. Now, the ascension is extremely important, and I've only touched on it so far. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but we will be coming back to this because it comes up a lot in Acts, and I will, Lord willing, speak on the ascension in more detail in future Sundays. So we're going to move on to, chapter, to verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, just for full disclosure here, I, I had largely finished my sermon. I was close to the end today, and I went and listened to John MacArthur's sermon on the same passage. And I will say, we had, I think this is a good sign, we had made many similar points, which I was excited to see. But I also learned some things from his sermon that I'm incorporating into this sermon. So for full disclosure, several of the things I will be saying today, I learned this morning, actually, from, from his sermon on this passage, and others as well. Okay, um, what are we to make of what is happening here? Okay, now just, I want you to think for a second why we even have a problem to, to deal with in this passage. Imagine you have been one of the 12, or you've been around them, maybe you were some of the women following along and helping out Jesus in many different ways, like Mary Magdalene, or Mary the mother of Jesus, and other women, Mary and Martha. And imagine after these nearly three years of ministry, Jesus is betrayed not by a Roman leader, although that did happen in effect, not by someone else, but by one of, not, not just by one of his disciples. He had lots of disciples. Remember, he sends out the 72 and other th- times. One of his 12 betrays him and hands him over to the Romans. Now, this would shake you and I to the depths because if one of the 12 chosen by Jesus could betray Jesus, how can I trust the other 11? How can I trust even any of the disciples? This is a... This is a 
earth-shaking kind of event. Now listen, we are so used to Judas's betrayal that we just are like, yeah, that's part of the story. That's how this thing happens. But, but be kind of as a human being living through it. This was not something you would have… Jesus foresaw it. He knew about this. But we would not have had a full understanding of this. The Last Supper, remember Jesus brings up one of you will betray me, and they're going, what? Who, Lord? Is it I? the one with whom I share this bread and this dish, and Judas takes it. So this would have been earth-shaking, and it just happened about a month ago. Are you with this? Like a month ago, 40 days ago, this betrayal just happened. This is a, an unsettling thing. What are we to think about God's sovereignty? If one of the 12 can just seem to wreck, wreck plans, how, what, what are we to do? And so this passage is meant to reassure us that even something as wicked and evil as the betrayal of one of Jesus' own twelve is part of God's sovereign plan and was predicted in multiple Old Testament Psalms. That that is there to comfort us to know this was part of God's plan. It did not destroy God's plan. So even, even the enemies of God unwittingly fulfill God's sovereign purposes in His providence for this world. Those who betrayed and crucified Jesus thought they were getting the best of Jesus. Now, looking back, it was actually the great saving event of Jesus' life that came from that. But still, what do you do? Jesus has just gone up to heaven in this cloud. What are we to do? And they return back to Jerusalem, uh, less than a mile away, a Sabbath journey, and they go to an upper room in verse 13. Now, this upper room, I know no Bible text tells us it's the same room, but I am suspicious if this is not the same room that they've already been in. This sounds a lot like the room in Luke 24 where Jesus appeared in His resurrection form and Luke 22 where they had the Last Supper. I can't prove it, but it certainly would make a lot of sense that this large upper room is the room that they are in in several points throughout these times. If so, how strange would that be? Back in that room, Jesus is gone, and you're thinking back to that supper that was just not many weeks ago had right here, and Jesus promised, what, I'm not going to leave you, I'm going to return to you, which He did as a resurrected Messiah, and I'm going to give you My Spirit. And in the next chapter, starts in this upper room, the Spirit begins to come down, and Jesus is going to keep His promises to these disciples. The disciples there are named. I won't read their names again. Look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, I, I just love this, but I want to draw out a few points here. First of all, I want to mention Mary. Believe it or not, this is the last time Mary is named in the Bible. This is it. This is her last appearance by name in the New Testament. And it is very interesting to me that it doesn't say that they were gathered, to gal they were gathered together in the upper room and that they were praying to Mary. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they were gathered together and that they were worshiping Mary. It doesn't say they were gathering together to venerate Mary. It doesn't say that they were gathering. In fact, Mary just drops off the map after this verse, and, and, and you move on. In fact, so do most of the other apostles just sort of drop away as you move forward. And so, just in, in, if I can just be blunt here, not politically correct, but the Bible's not politically correct, uh, the Catholic Church's elevation of Mary uh, is a very destructive and unhelpful teaching. 
Uh, in the Bible, Mary is definitely esteemed as a godly woman, a woman of great faith, just as many saints are esteemed in the Bible and are worthy of imitation in many ways. But the idea of praying to Mary or the idea of venerating and I think essentially worshiping Mary, the idea even uh, of calling Mary a co-redeemer, which is what the Catholic Church has called Mary, a co-redemptrix, that's their term for Mary, is a false teaching that is not found in the Bible itself. And so we, we need to be aware of how we talk about Mary, Jesus' physical mother uh, that, was, that, that, that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus within. We don't want to degrade her. We don't want to mock her. She is worthy of imitation, just as many saints. But we don't want to esteem or elevate her in an improper or unhealthy way, and you do not see any sign of that here uh, in, her, in her last appearance in, in the Bible and, and, frankly, anywhere in the Gospels. Now, as they gather together, the half-brothers of Jesus are there, and no doubt his sisters too. We're told he had brothers and sisters. Mark 6 talks about that and names a few of them. This would include Jude, who wrote the New Testament letter of Jude. It would include James, who wrote the New Testament letter of James. And these were brothers who, when Jesus was in his ministry, did not believe in him. Uh, John 7, his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they, they seem to have a kind of antagonistic view toward their own brother. And Mark, we're told that they, that they came to get Jesus, his brothers, thinking that he was out of his mind for the things he was saying about himself. Now, in any other instance, they would have been correct. Any other time your brother's going around saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, you would say, I think he's out of his mind. But in this case, he actually was the Messiah, and so the brothers were completely uh, incorrect about Jesus, so what made the difference? There is no indication that his brothers and sisters were believers until suddenly they show up in this upper room. I mean, there's no indication before this moment, and so just here they are, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 it says Jesus appeared to others, but then it says he appeared to James also. Imagine that meeting. I would love to have seen this. James is sitting there thinking his brother literally was crazy and had died for a lie, and now he's buried, you know, having received the penalty for his lie, and all of a sudden Jesus appears where James is, and they must have had some kind of astonishing conversation. And James, no doubt at that moment, repents of his sin puts his faith in his resurrected brother, his older brother, his half-brother, and believes in him as Messiah, and he goes on to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem for decades to come until we are told by Josephus. Now listen, Josephus is a non-Christian. Remember, he's a Pharisee, non-Christian first century Jewish historian, Josephus. He tells us, James, this is from Josephus, non-Christian first century historian, James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, He's not a Christian, right? James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, received the death penalty from, from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, I believe this is around maybe the 60s AD, somewhere in there, mid-60s AD. And so James ends up being a mighty man of God for decades before he is martyred for the faith he had in his brother that is later recorded by a non-Christian historian from the first century. So astonishing here what's going on. Now, I, I, love, I love something we can sort of take to heart and learn here. Um, Jesus has just ascended, and they may be ready to go. Like, let's go preach that He's risen, we've met Him, He's given us a task, a mission, He's ascended back to heaven, let's go to the center of Jerusalem, you know, bang a drum, get some attention, blow the trumpet, and say, hey, we've got to tell you some great news. And instead, what does Jesus say? Look again at verse 4. 
while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but I think one of the hardest things in the Christian life is waiting. Can anyone agree with that? You, you have a goal you want to accomplish. You have something you want to do for the glory of God, you, you at least believe. And everything seems ready to go, and then suddenly something occurs, and there's a speed bump, there's a detour, and the Lord forces you to wait. Now, you say, yes, but they only had to wait 10 days. <laughs> that wasn't a very long, I can handle 10 days maybe. Maybe you've been waiting much longer than that for something that you would desire. But either way, at the very moment when all systems are go, let's go, let's proclaim this message, let's go preach Jesus. He's conquered death. He has died for sinners. Let's go. Jesus says, actually, go back to that upper room and spend the next 10 days waiting. And waiting really means preparing. So I, I want to say this as a word of encouragement to all of us. When the Lord has us wait, the Lord would, let me re, start over. When the Lord would, would have us wait, the Lord would have us to prepare for whatever He has for us next. When the Lord has us waiting, we should take that time to prepare for whatever the Lord has for us next. It is so tempting with where, whatever stage of life we're in to be bored with our current stage and excited about the next stage. Can you relate to this? I mean, you, you can start as young as you want to start. You can say, well, yeah, you know, middle school, but I can't wait for high school. You know, high school, I can't wait to have my driver's license. Driver's license, can't wait till I graduate high school. Graduation, can't wait till I start college. Finish college, can't wait till I get my first big job. And then it's, I can't wait till I get married. I can't wait till I have my first child, my second child, whatever, whatever number you're on, child. Then it's, I can't wait until I retire, or I can't wait till I'm a grandparent, or I can't wait until this, 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 this. Now, do you see, it is so easy. There's always greener grass, we think, around the next corner of the road. And so what we do is, we get caught up in the future moment, and we completely lose track of what's going on here and now. And if, not to sound dramatic here, but if the devil or your flesh can get you living in the future and ignoring the present, you could live your whole life as if you weren't living at all. Yes, plan for the future. Yes, think about the future. They are preparing. They're praying for what is to come. But in the meantime, they are not wasting this time. They are praying, and we find out here, they're praying, and they are studying God's Word in anticipation, and they are doing what they can do in the time that the Lord has given them. Let us, I think it was Jim Elliott, I'm sure this is a phrase that's been used by more than Jim Elliot, but in Jim Elliot's journal, he's, I think he was making a note to himself, the famous missionary martyr. He said, wherever you are, be all there. You know that phrase? But he was applying this to himself because he was saying, listen, there's a lot. I want to get done with Wheaton College and go out to the mission field. And the Lord used him greatly, but he didn't want to ignore the times at Wheaton College before he was sent out, and he wanted to make use of those times. And, 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 and he did in, in so many ways while he was there. So, Wherever the Lord has you right now, it is not wrong to anticipate the future, but don't live so caught up in that next turn in the road that you forget that you're driving on this stretch right now. And be used by the Lord to the, the greatest degree possible where He has you here and now. Don't forget where the Lord has placed you. Wherever you are, be all there. Be present where you are and use that as a chance to honor God with your life. Now, let me read verse 14 one more time. All these 
with one accord, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I read about other believers who had very strong and consistent prayer lives, and I often say, you know, I wish I had more of that. But in all seriousness, it's not a rebuke. I'm talking to myself. We all need to pray more than we do. I, I would be, I can't believe that there's anybody in this room who says, I pray sufficiently. <laughs> I, I got it. I, every day I check off, you know, pray without ceasing, which I, I understand that verse isn't to be taken as in like literally at every single moment. I think the word, cons- uh, pr- uh, the word for pray without ceasing, I've heard that the term for without ceasing was the same word used to describe a frequent cough. That still way outdoes my prayer life, okay? If you've got a bad cough, how often are you praying? Every time you cough, you're like, yeah, not there yet. Uh, but I, we, we could all be challenged in this to devote ourselves to prayer like we actually believe my plans and my strength can't get the job done. God's plans and God's strength always get the job done. Let me pray like that's true. So, I mean, if I'm being honest, I feel so often like actually taking 10 minutes that's so weak. I mean, some people prayed 45 minutes a day. Just 10 minutes. Just, I, I'm going to turn off everything, put my phone on silent. I'm going to even maybe put my head down and hold my head, whatever posture you like, and say, Lord, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I want to just pray. 20 minutes, I just want to pray. It feels, when I'm, when, I'm about, when I'm on the verge of making a decision about prayer, it feels like I'm choosing to waste my time. Now, that feeling is a lie. But doesn't it feel... This is where our heart is deceitful. It feels like I've got a list of things to do. I'm sure you do too. It's like I've got, I'm, I'm behind. I've got 15 things to do. I've got emails to respond to. I've got a phone call I need to make. I've got to text somebody back. I've got all this stuff to do. To spend 20 minutes right now before bed praying, it feels emotionally like a bad use of time. And yet, it is, we've got to believe this. It's the singular best use of time imaginable. I heard one theologian said, I think it was Lloyd-Jones, he said, there is one impulse that you should never disobey, the impulse to pray. That is something that, if that impulse comes, make time for it, and when it doesn't come, you're like, yeah, what if I I go a long time without an impulse to pray? Make time and choose to pray anyway. Uh, Choose to pray anyway and, and, and use Scripture as a guide, but we must pray to the God who is sovereign in heaven that His work would be done on earth and in our lives. Okay, look with me here, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, just a couple things here. First of all, one of the things Peter was doing, no doubt, other than praying, was some kind of study of Scripture. Because he's got Scripture on his mind, and he's thinking about Jesus and Judas here. And look at his view of Scripture. It doesn't get much better than this. Verse 16. Brothers... The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which, listen to this, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David 
concerning Judas. That is a great definition of how Scripture works. It doesn't matter if the narrator is speaking. It doesn't matter if David is speaking. It doesn't matter if it's Jesus speaking, right? We don't elevate the red letters above the black letters. If we have a red letter Bible, they're all red letters. It's the Word of God, right? I understand Satan is quoted, and Satan is wrong when he's quoted. You understand how this works, okay? I get it. People do lie in the Bible, and those words we should not follow. But the Bible, in its teaching and what it is saying, it is inerrant and inspired and infallible. When David wrote the Psalms, the Holy Spirit was speaking through David's mouth. And so when, when you quote the Bible, you can just say, the Holy Spirit says. If you've ever wanted the Holy Spirit to speak to you, there are over a thousand pages right here of the Holy Spirit speaking. Every psalm is the Holy Spirit talking to you live right now. It doesn't fade away because it's thousands of years ago. It's the Holy Spirit speaking right now. And does the Holy Spirit make mistakes when He speaks? No, because he, he, you know, He's omniscient. And when you know everything, you tend to not make errors in what you say. So th this is, the, this is ho the Holy Spirit speaking through David so long ago. And I, I just got to add, he's about to quote two psalms. And you say, you know, is it he knit me together in my mother's womb? Is it, you know, I'm fearfully wonderful? Is it, is it he, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Is it, no, he's about to quote two imprecatory psalms. You know what those are, remember? These are psalms where David asks for God to bring down judgment on his enemies. The ones that we're a little embarrassed by in 21st century America to read out loud, I read one at the beginning of the service, and maybe you're like, wow, that's kind of interesting. So when you hear those psalms, you kind of, ooh, you feel a little uncomfortable. Is that supposed to be in the Bible? About, Peter's about to quote two imprecatory psalms and say, who's talking? The Holy Spirit is talking. Wow, what a high view of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, now look, look with me here. Verse 17, speaking about Judas... He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Just in case you're wondering, I, want to, I just want to be crystal clear. I get questions about this with my high school students regularly. I've heard, I've heard this question probably about every year I've taught. Was Judas a genuine Christian? And I, I'm going to say unequivocally, Judas was not a believer, and Judas was never a believer. We're told in John chapter 6, listen to the, you don't have to turn there, but listen to these words, Jesus speaking, but there are some of you who do not believe... So he's talking about unbelievers. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then right after that it says, did I not choose you the twelve and one of you is the devil? Is a, is a devil. So very clear here, Judas was an unbeliever from the beginning. And he maintained an outward facade to some degree, but was he stealing from the money bag the entire time? Yes, he was the treasurer. You don't want Judas to be your treasurer. I just want to throw that out there. If, you're looking, if your business is looking for a treasurer, don't go with Judas Iscariot. It's going to be a bad choice. Judas was helping himself for the money that they pulled together to help the poor, and he was like, well, I'm poor, I'll help myself. That's what Judas's mindset was. So he was not a believer from the beginning, and Acts will also confirm here he went to his own place, which is not heaven. This is not, not, a, good, not a good outcome for Judas Iscariot. Now, before I read this next part, this is really important. Judas was not a robot. Judas was a human being who made real decisions based on his own desires. He was not being forced against his will to betray Jesus. He loved money, and he was glad to take money in place of Jesus because money was on a higher throne than Jesus in his life. He was happy to trade Jesus for money. He'd been trading Jesus for money for three years, right? When you're stealing from Jesus, you're trading him for money the whole time. And then he betrayed him for silver pieces. So, 
Judas was an accountable human being who made real decisions and is held accountable for those decisions. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 22, the Son of Man is betrayed as it has been determined. In other words, this is part of God's plan. And then the next part he says, and woe to that man by whom I am betrayed. Was Judas accountable for what he did? Yes, woe to that man. Was it also planned in the Old Testament? Yes, it was determined before it happened. Those two truths, I know, sound irreconcilable in our minds. How could God pre-plan the betrayal of Judas and predict it in the Psalms, in numerous Psalms, and how could Judas not be a robot but be truly accountable? You ready for the answer? It's beyond my pay grade. I don't know. I don't know how to fit those two truths together, but I have no doubt the Bible teaches both of those two truths. We are accountable for our decisions, and God is sovereign over all that happens in His world. Okay, let's keep going here. Verse 18. This is a little parenthesis to tell us what happened to Judas. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Now, if you're familiar with, frankly, kind of atheist attacks on the Bible or agnostic attacks on the Bible, th- this text is one of, the, one of the favorite texts of so-called Bible contradictions. So, I'm going to try to do this relatively quickly. There are two accounts of Judas' death. One is Matthew 27, the opening verses. The other one is Acts chapter 1. Now, uh, the so-called contradictions here, I just heard, just this past year, I heard a very well-known non-Christian Bible scholar, Bart Ehrman, use this as a case in point for the unreliability of the New Testament. This was, the, this was his issue. Debated it with a guy named Peter Williams. And uh, I'm sorry, Bart, I, uh, I respect not much of what you believe, but I respect you as a person, and I love you as a person, but I don't agree with the argument here. So here, here's, here's how I'd respond to this. In Matthew 27, it says Judas went out and hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, it says he fell headlong in this disgusting depiction. He, he hit the ground and his bowels gushed out, this disgusting, revolting picture of this gory demise. Also, we're told here that he acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness. So who bought the field? Judas. He, re- he acquired the field with the reward of his wickedness. In Matthew 27, it says that the religious leaders bought the field. The Pharisees, they bought the field. What? So I'm going to explain why I don't think this is a contradiction. Number one, and you've probably heard this, there are so many ways to reconcile the death of Judas here The issue is not that there's a contradiction. The issue is we just don't have the full information. I can think of about five different ways you can easily reconcile these two death accounts. Okay, you ready? Could he have gone to the field of blood, and there there are cliffs there, where this is the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, the the Valley of Gehenna. There are cliffs there. Could he have hung himself off of a tree, and could the rope or the branch have broken, and could he have fallen to his bloody death down at the bottom of the cliff? Yes. And does Matthew record part of that incident, and Luke the other part? Yes, another possibility, I'm sorry, this is a little bit gross, but the language of the Scripture is very intense here. Another possibility is that he hung himself and he stayed dead hanging there for a few days, and his body went through, uh, you know, a kind of reaction that, that would have involved swelling and fluid, and then later the rope broke, the branch broke, or someone cut him down, and when he fell and hit the ground, it was an unusual gross incident. And Luke is drawing out the aspect of the grossness of it. Now, here's the thing. You will sometimes notice in the Bible, really violent and grotesque deaths 
sometimes indicate the judgment of God. Okay? Like the book of Judges has the most, if you've read Judges, the intensity of the deaths in Judges are so gory. And why? It's depicting the apostasy of Israel and the evil of what's happening, and that's probably a good bit of the reason why it's so intense. So here, Judas's uh, death is being described in gory detail to show God's displeasure in what Judas had done. Um, now, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to add it anyway. You're used to that. I find this to be quite something to look into and to just tell me what you think about this. I think there's something to this. Okay, so David, back in, back in 2 Samuel, you got David, you got Jesus. One Davidic king who is a type of the other, right? David is a type of Christ. Now, think about this, a couple of little interesting things. David had a close friend named Ahithophel who acted like he was on David's side but was conspiring against David and was trying to have David killed and overthrown. Does it sound like anyone you've ever heard of? Now, get, this is where it gets kind of interesting. 2 Samuel, uh, I think it's chapter 15, yeah, 15, it says this, the only instance in all of David's story that it says he walked down through the Kidron Valley, remember the picture, the valley that was at the low point of that picture was the Kidron Valley? David walked down the Kidron Valley, the only time we're ever told David crossed the Kidron, and then he walked up the Mount of Olives, the only time we're ever told David walked up the Mount of Olives in the, in the entire story of David. You know what's at the top of the Mount of Olives? It's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Now listen to this. David crosses the Kidron, goes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and when he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, right near where the Garden of Gethsemane was later, he finds out that Ahithophel is betraying him at the top of the Mount of Olives. Then, even stranger to me, Ahithophel is the only other person in the entire Bible to kill himself by hanging. Now, the Greek word, he hanged himself, in the Greek Old Testament, it appears once, Ahithophel. In the New Testament, once, Matthew 27, Judas. I think Ahithophel is a type of Judas, just like David is a type of Christ. So what you have is, in John 18, remember, on the night of the Lord's Supper, the only time, we are, you, the only time we're ever told this, Jesus crossed the Kidron. The only time David crossed the Kidron. Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives. David walked up the Mount of Olives. Jesus went to Gethsemane. David was near that spot. And that's where David found out about his close friend betrayer. That's where Jesus met his close friend betrayer. And then they both later are found out. They know their plan isn't going to work. They realize that they've done something horrible, and they both go off and hang themselves. That is a fascinating typology that I see between the betrayer of one Davidic king and the betrayer of another Davidic king in the New Testament. Those kinds of things, by the way, are all over the place in Scripture. It's just astonishing when you see the complexity of how these things fit together. Okay, let's jump back into verse 20. Oh, I didn't mention the, 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 the paying for the, for the field. I didn't say that, did I? That's important. So, I don't often quote the joker from the dark night from the pulpit. But in desperate moments, you have no choice. I know some of you are probably dark night fans. Real quick. In the first scene where the joker is like fully the joker... Okay, so when the Joker comes in to see the mafia bosses, you remember this? He's got the purple suit on, the crazy makeup, and he says to them, he stole a bunch of money from the, uh, from the uh, mafia bosses, and he says, uh, this suit wasn't cheap. You ought to know you bought it. Now, that doesn't mean that the mafia bosses went down to the local store and bought the Joker his suit. It means the Joker took their money and bought his own suit. So in a sense, he bought it, and in a sense, they bought it because they paid for it, Right? 
That is largely what is happening here, despite the comic book aspect, okay? So what's happening here is, whose money is it that paid for the field? It's Judas's money. Judas earned the money by betraying Jesus. It was Judas's money. It is true that he threw the money back to the temple, we're told in Matthew, but then they took his money in his name and bought the field. So the Pharisees did actually go and make the deal. They bought it, but who paid for it? Judas did. This is not a Bible contradiction. It's just, when you think about it, it's kind of common sense. It was his money, so they used Judas's money to buy it, so Judas bought it, he paid for it, but they're the ones that actually went and made that deal. Judas was not able to do that at that time, given the fact that he had likely already committed suicide in that very same field. So I, I don't think there's a Bible contradiction here at all. I just think there's a lack of information, and when you fill in some of the holes, you can see uh, what's happening. Okay, verse 20. For it is written in the Psalms, uh, in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, that's referring to the, the place where Judas died, which became a burial plot for, for foreigners. Matthew 27 gives us more on that. And let another take his office. That's Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Let another take his office. And they have no problem applying passages about David to Jesus because, again, Jesus was a type, oh, David was a type of Christ. Okay, verses 21 and 22. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, I don't think this is going to be a common struggle in this room, but there have been always times in church history where people have claimed that there are modern-day capital-A apostles living among us. Oftentimes, these are in cults <laughs> or some kind of cult, but this idea that there are modern-day capital-A apostles, I'm telling you, it, it's not possible. Look at the qualifications. They had to be with Jesus throughout His ministry and have met Him as a resurrected Messiah. So, to be part of the Twelve, you had to meet those qualifications. You may be wondering, wait a second, Paul was not there for the whole earthly ministry of Jesus, but the, what was he able to do? He met the risen Jesus on the Emmaus Road, and he wasn't one of the twelve, but he was a capital A apostle. So, th these qualifications are very clear here, and no one today meets these qualifications. Once uh, the apostles have died after this, there is no replacement uh, for them. In fact, Paul says, I was, the la I was born untimely, the last of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says. So, after Paul, there, there aren't going to be any more apostles. Okay, verse 23 through 26. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Now, this casting lots thing, you've probably seen it in the Old Testament a lot. You know, it no longer shows up after this. And you know what happens in the next chapter? I don't, I don't necessarily want to stake my life on this point, but I think this is very likely what's going on here. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out, right? The very next chapter, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers, and there's no more casting of lots. I do wonder if the, the Holy Spirit helping us with decision-making replaces the use of lots from the Old Testament. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Either way, 
uh, Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is, think, think like throwing dice, the lot is cast into the lap, and it's every decision is from the Lord. Astonishing. So when you throw dice, the Lord's will is always done when those dice show up. The, the lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. The dice have never been thrown that the decision was not from the Lord. Never happened. Proverbs 16, 33. So what they probably did was they may have put these, I mean, this is one possibility from Chronicles, gives an example of this. They may have written the individual's name on a stone and put those stones in a pouch or something and shaken them, and the first stone to come out and land on the ground would be the one the Lord had chosen. Perhaps. Something like that, perhaps, is what happened. And Matthias was chosen. I will tell you, just privately here, this other guy with a lot of names, Joseph, called Barsabbas and Justice, Got a lot of names. Joseph, that guy, I will tell you, if I was him, I would have struggled with this moment. So it's like they narrowed it down to two. This is going to be great. I'm going to be an apostle. Shake the bag. Matthias, I'm so happy for you, Matthias. This is a great day for you. I love you. It's, it's like, you know, when an award show, you know, they show the actor. They're like, oh, I'm so glad you got the Oscar, not me. You know, that whole thing. So uh, Matthias has to kind of lovingly, I mean, excuse me, J Joseph has to hand it to Matthias. I really do. I mean, in all seriousness, that must have been quite a struggle. So you're saying the Holy Spirit explicitly did not pick me. That is correct, sir. It's like, oh my goodness, like that. So there, there, there must have been a real trial there, for it, but there, there's no indication. He said, let's do a revote here. Can we do it? Can we do a tally of the sheet? Let's recast again. Let's, let's do two out of three. None, none of that. None of that. He, he, he seems to have, have done just fine handling that uh, news there. And Matthias is added to the 11. Now, what's the big deal about adding the 12th person? I mean, what, what's the big deal? Well, Matthias is never mentioned again. In fact, other than Peter, James, and John, I don't think any of the disciples are mentioned again after this. I could be wrong about that. There might be an exception. But essentially, in the book of Acts, except Peter, James, and John, and Paul, of the twelve, they're all gone. Matthias is not mentioned again. So why this big half chapter about Matthias, and then he just drops off the, the radar? I, I think, again, now again, this is not something all Christians will agree on, but going back to my last two sermons, the last two uh, weeks, I think that Jesus must have the number 12 because it's a symbolic number of, the, of Israel, the 12 tribes. And so if he, if, he is, if he is renewing Israel in the church age, then he needs 12 as representatives of Israel to start this thing off. And so the church is birthed out of the 12. It cannot be 11. It's got to be 12 because there's 12 tribes. So I think that's the emphasis here as we move into the Pentecost scene. I want to make sure I've got everything here. Okay. So I just want to just wrap up and thank you again for, 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 for walking through all this with me. Uh, I want to just say a quick word about the gospel itself, because if you're not a believer, or maybe you just sort of stopped by today with a friend, or, or you're not maybe considering yourself a Christian, first of all, we love that you're here. We welcome you here. Uh, we'd love to meet you, talk to you. But if, if you're not a believer today, I want you to know that the central message of Christianity didn't take place in today's passage. It took place just a little bit before. If you rewind about 40 days back in time, Jesus had just been crucified, bearing the weight of sin for all those who will turn and trust him. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was resurrected on the third day, and he, after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. Now, let me tell you something. Jesus is a human being right now. He's divine, and he is truly human right now. There is a son of David 
sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling over this world. And right now he is exercising great patience towards his world. My goodness, we don't deserve it. Just watch the news, whatever it is. We don't deserve the patience of God. And Jesus is waiting patiently. Second Peter 3 says, some people mock Christians and say, why hasn't the day of the Lord already come? We've been waiting decade after decade. I'm thinking they're saying that in the first century. Imagine what they would be saying today, those particular scoffers that he mentions. Well, Jesus, the, the, the Scripture says, the Lord is exercising not forgetfulness, but patience towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. And so the Lord is being patient, giving us life and breath, keeping the world orbiting the sun and all things working as they are so that we have time by His mercy for His kindness to lead us to repentance, that we would come to our senses and turn from sin, that we would entrust ourselves in Jesus who bled and died for us in our place so that we would not have to bear God's judgment that I deserve, that you deserve, Christianity is not a self-improvement seminar. Christianity is about how dead, lost sinners find salvation and new life in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not about us being better than anybody. And so Jesus right now offers you salvation and cleansing and forgiveness for free because it cost Him His life. And you can have that right now by simple faith in Him and turning away from self. For those who are believers… Even as we are about to sing again, let us just reassure ourselves of the truth, these glorious truths that we've thought about and that we've talked about today. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when your word speaks, your Holy Spirit speaks. We thank you that we can trust your word. God, help us as we talk today. When we are waiting, help us to pray, to be in your word, and to love others wherever you have us right now before the next turn in the road comes. Lord, help us to trust you that even when something as horrible as the betrayal of Judas occurs, it has not caught you by surprise. Psalm 41, David says, He who broke bread with me, my friend, has lifted up his heel against me. We are told numerous times about the betrayal of the son of David, of the Davidic king, by a close friend in the Psalms. And Lord, it was written ahead of time, written down centuries, a millennia before these events transpired. Help us to know that even when things are not making sense, when life is not going the way we would wish, when trials come our way, even when people sin against us in horrible ways, which at times tragically happens as Judas sinned against the Lord Jesus, help us like Jesus to trust in your sovereignty, in your plan, that you have a purpose even for the betrayal of Judas in your sovereignty to bring about the salvation of your people. God, we thank you that you are good and that your providence is in control and that we can entrust ourselves to you because when the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision is from you, Lord. Help us to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.